This morning, God's Word comes to us from 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians 7. We are going to pick up our reading at verse 8 and then read through the first part of verse 13 of this chapter. 2 Corinthians 7, beginning at verse 8. What we hear now is God's Word. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. Here we end the reading of God's holy word. Well, this morning we are continuing our series of sermons in the application of our salvation. We've talked about the, orders, the ordo salutis, the order in which God applies his saving work to us. Uh, last time I mentioned that the third step in the ordo salutis is really a twofold step. It is the step of faith and repentance. Both of these things uh, taking place together. We don't see a particular priority of one over the other here, but faith and repentance uh, that God works in our lives. And, and unlike the previous two steps, effectual calling and regeneration, this is something we are called to do. Those first two steps, uh, the work of God in our lives. And while it is true, God gives us the gift of faith and His Holy Spirit works in our hearts repentance, it is we who believe. It is our faith. And it is we who repent. God calls us to this faith and repentance. Last time, we looked at faith and the importance of faith in our life. This morning, we're going to look at repentance as I said, these are really, really two sides of the same coin. Theologian John Murray says, saving faith is a penitent faith, and repentance is a believing repentance. These two go together. Paul talks about repentance in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Perhaps you recall what had gone on that occasioned the necessity for repentance. 
Paul wrote a number of letters to Corinth. We don't have all of them. Uh, Paul wrote the, the Corinthians initially. Uh, we generally refer to that as his lost letter because while he makes reference to it, we do not have it. And then he wrote them another time. We call that our first Corinthians, the first one that we have. And then Paul wrote another letter that we usually refer to as his severe or his harsh letter before writing the fourth time what we have in our Bibles as 2 Corinthians. Paul wrote that severe, harsh letter because there was someone in the church there in Corinth who had a disagreement, some type of offense against the Apostle Paul. And Paul writes that severe letter to call that person and the church in general to repentance. And that's exactly what happened. They received that severe letter and they repented. Look what he says in verse 8. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, with that severe letter, I do not regret it, though I did, for I see the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. Paul wrote the severe letter. They were grieved. They were sorry for what they had done, and they turned to God in repentance. Repentance. What is it? What does it look like? Paul gives us some help with that in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. So we look at this chapter this morning. Again, I want to say repentance always accompanies faith. And I make a big deal about that. Because particularly in our Reformed tradition, we are used to certain phrases which are true. We say in the Reformed churches, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone. Faith alone, faith alone. Not faith and works, not faith and what we do. We are saved through faith alone. And so why do we say repentance is conjoined with faith? Are we now saying we're saved by faith and works? And what we do? No, Repentance is simply faith expressing itself in our actions. It is faith expressing itself in our lives, in our works. There are some who would like to um, try to drive a wedge between the Apostle Paul and what he says in Scripture and the Apostle James what he says in Scripture, as if Paul teaches we are saved by faith alone, and James teaches we are saved by faith and works. Well, by now you know, they are just highlighting two different emphases of our salvation. Some would go to a chapter like James chapter 2. You may wish to turn there if you like. 
James chapter 2 and read what James says, chapter 2, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one, says, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Faith and works, faith and repentance, changing our lives. Yes, it is true that we are saved through faith alone. But as one of my seminary professors used to say, we are saved through faith alone. But that faith is never alone. We are saved through faith alone, but that faith is never alone. It is always accompanied by repentance. It is accompanied by the way we live. It is accompanied by our works. Not saved by faith and works, by faith alone. But that faith, saving faith, is never alone. And in fact, that's James' point in the examples that he gives. Verse 15 and 16, if someone is lacking in food or clothing and you say, be warmed and filled, said, what good is that? doesn't mean anything. No, you got to take care of them. you got to do something. So faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. There's a, there's a repentance. There's a change. There's a, a way of living that comes along with faith. And he gives us two examples uh, from history. Again, reading from James chapter 2. He says at verse 20, Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless. Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works. And faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that said, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. Abraham, the father of believers, the father of the faithful. James says even our father Abraham was justified by a faith working, a faith accompanied by repentance. Look at Abraham, the father of all believers, the father of the faithful. He was justified through faith. Faith alone, but a faith that was not alone. He gives a second, a second example at the end of chapter 2. He says, And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works? when she received the messengers and sent them out another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Not only Abraham, but Rahab. Rahab the prostitute. 
believed the words of the spies when they came and talked with her, and she acted on that. I find it so interesting that James gives us these two examples from history. Abraham, the father of believers, and Rahab, the prostitute. Her name almost always followed by those words, the prostitute in Scripture. James is telling us this truth about faith and repentance, faith and the change that comes because of faith, is for everyone. Doesn't matter if you're Abraham, the father of believers. Doesn't matter if you're Rahab, the prostitute. For everyone, when they place their faith in Christ, there's a change, there's a repentance that has to be followed by that. For everyone, this change must take place. Our repentance accompanies our faith. It, it, it accomplishes, it, it fulfills our faith, we might say. And, and just like we saw last week, that faith has an ongoing character. It's not the case that we believe in Jesus once and we're saved and then never think about him again. We continually put our faith in Him. We continually look to Him for our strength, for all the things we need in life. We continually look to Him for our salvation. There is that continual nature in repentance as well. An ongoing change. We might say that repentance is the character of the Christian life. It's not something we do at one time. I repented at one time and now I'm never going to go back and repent again. No, we continually are called to repent before God, that our works continually might be pleasing in His sight, conforming to His Word. That's our understanding of what, what repentance is. It is something that accompanies our faith. It's not, it's not independent of faith. and something that continues throughout our lives. So what then, what then is the, the character or the nature of that repentance? And I have in your bulletin, uh, the, uh, on the outline this morning, I have its changing nature. And I really don't like that, uh, but I couldn't find a better way to say it. What I mean by that is not, I do not mean that the nature of repentance changes. I'm not saying that one day the nature is this and one day it's something else. But what I mean by that, what I'm trying to convey by that, is the nature of repentance is change. The nature of repentance is a change that takes place in our lives, a change of our minds and a change of our actions. And that's what Paul refers to, again, from 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Verse 11, foresee what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, and also what eagerness to clear yourselves. There was a change in their lives, a change in the way that they lived because they were repenting. They placed their faith in Jesus Christ and they repented. They changed their minds and they changed their actions. And I'd like to, uh, this morning, suggest three specific uh, changes that take place in repentance. Changes with respect to sin, a change with respect to God, and a change with respect to righteous living. When we repent, there is a change 
with respect to sin. Our minds and our actions change with respect to sin. Again from verse 11. See what earnestness this godly grief produced in you, also what eagerness to clear yourselves. What indignation. Indignation toward what? Indignation toward their sin. They no longer wanted to be part of that sin anymore. They were were indignant at the way they had lived and desired to change. They were no longer embracing their sin, courting their sin. But they began hating their sin. What indignation, what hatred towards sin. That's part of our repentance, a change of our mind, a change of the way we think about our sin. That no longer do I desire it, no longer do I seek after it. But I hate my sin more and more. And I I hate not just the sinful condition I find myself in. I hate specific sins in my life those sins that that are so clear and so obvious. I I hate the besetting sins in my life, those sins I seem to always want to return to. I must hate those more and more, change my attitude toward those sins, a change of mind that leads to a change in action. That's repentance. That's what's going on. He says, see what indignation, see what fear you have. Fear of what? Fear that perhaps because of my sin, my walk with God is now going to be hindered. And you know what that's like. You know that when we are giving in to our sins, giving in to our besetting sins, returning to those sins that we just hate, and yet we go back and do them once again, our walk with God is hurt. When we begin to 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 have a greater love for our sin than we have for God, we fear. We fear that we're losing that close connection with God. And he he compares the, the, the difference between a true repentance and a false repentance. In verse 10, godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret whereas a worldly grief produces death. Godly grief, that sorrow for sin, that, that, that desire never to return, produces that change of mind and change of action, repentance. And that repentance leads to salvation. It restores the broken relationship with God. But a worldly grief, a worldly sorrow, a sorrow that someone found out about my sin rather than the sin itself leads only to death. The the ends of proper repentance and improper could not be far farther apart than each other. Proper grief, godly grief leads to repentance and salvation. Worldly grief leads us to death. And notice he says, it leads to salvation without regret. This repentance leads to salvation without regret. Without feeling like we're missing out on something. Like, like if only I could go back to my sin once again, I'd really have joy there. 
and, and I regret the fact that I have to change my mind and change my actions. No, this godly grief, this godly sorrow, this true repentance leads to a salvation without regret. There is nothing in this world that compares to the joy of knowing we belong to God, knowing He is our Savior. True repentance is a change, a change of mind and action with regard to our sin, with regard to God. Again, from verse 11. See what indignation, what fear, what longing, and what zeal. Longing and desiring the things of God. A zeal for a closer relationship with God. A change of mind, a change of action with regard to who God is. He is not someone who's trying to keep us from having fun. He's a God who loves us, who cares for us, who sent his son to die for us. What zeal to, to live in a way that's pleasing to him. What longing, what zeal, what punishment. Recognizing that when God does punish our sins, he does so justly. And, and God is right to do that. It's proper for God to do that. And when God calls us to repentance, calls us to change, change our minds and change our actions, it is for our good. When we become convicted of our sin and we desire to put that sin away, it's for our good that we might have a closer relationship with God. We might walk in the path of freedom, the path of safety. God doesn't call us to repent to punish us. He calls us to repent to bless us. It is a blessing to turn away from the sinful ways of life. It's a blessing to submit ourselves lovingly and humbly to God. A change of mind, a change of action with respect to God. Look at what longing, what zeal, even what punishments, knowing that God is doing it for our good. Repentance, a change of mind with respect to sin, with respect to God, and with respect to righteous living, holy living. Again from verse 11, see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, a desire to live in a way that is pleasing to God. Not seeing the fact that we're called to keep the law as a burden, but it is a blessing, a blessing for God's people to be called to walk in His ways. We are to have an earnestness, an eagerness, a desire to live in a way that's pleasing to God. Because not only does it bring glory to Him, it is blessing for us. Repentance means change, a change in our lives, a real practical change, not only in what we think, but also in what we do. In uh, Luke chapter 3, it says, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. There is a, a, a visible quality to repentance in our lives. We look different, we act different, we sound different. And we have this, this change that takes place in our lives.
Yes, just as with faith, which is the gift of the Holy Spirit, this repentance is wrought in us by the Holy Spirit, but it is us who repent. We are the ones who are called to change. God doesn't change his mind. God doesn't change his actions. We're called to change our minds and our actions. This beautiful part of the application of our salvation, the call to faith and repentance. Two sides of the same coin. Faith, embracing Christ, embracing what he has done, and reflecting on that, expressing that faith in the way that we live, in the way that we act, in the things we say, in the things we think even. And as I said last week, while I cannot call you to regeneration, I absolutely must call you to faith and repentance. To place your faith in Jesus Christ as the only hope for your salvation and because of that reality, to change. To change the way you live, to conform yourselves more and more to the ways of God. To change your mind with respect to sin. Don't look at sin as the path of freedom and fun. It's an offense against a holy God. Don't look as God as one who's trying to keep you from enjoying life. No, He cares for you. He loves you. And because of those things, change. Change the way you live. Perhaps even today. Change in a way that brings glory to God and honors Him for who He is. God calls us. Calls us to recognize what He has done in salvation. Yes, salvation is first and last from God. But His Spirit works in us. Oh, that it might be we would truly place our faith in him and repent, change our minds, and change our actions. Let's join together in prayer. Lord our God, we do thank you for the glorious gift of salvation, for the finished work of Jesus Christ who has done everything necessary to accomplish and secure salvation for us. And we praise you, O God, that you reveal the ways you apply that salvation in your holy word. O Lord God, stir up our hearts, stir up our minds, stir us to action today, that we might leave here with a greater desire to leave the paths of sin, to follow in your ways, to bring glory to you by pursuing righteous living. Hear our prayer, O God, for Jesus' sake. Amen.